power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. The man of tomorrow, Dr. Brian Sovereign, the Golden Stallion, Sob Zoo, the Radar Radio Star, here for another Sovereign Tech X. Woo! And, uh, well. You know it, what that means? Yes, as it means Woo. often enough. <laughs> Mrs. Sovereign is here as well, Mrs. Ellen Sovereign. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, fully decked out in Devon Towns and attire here. Oh, wow. I mean, you really are. <laughs> I, like, that was a coincidence. Yeah. But you got the hat on, mm-hmm. you have the hoodie on. Yes, so the hoodie's an Order of Magnitude hoodie, which yep. is a, a live album that he put out Yeah, um, that has a mixed collection of music mm-hmm. from various different albums. And then the hat is from Empath, the greatest album ever created. Like ever? Yeah, ever. Ever. And I feel very confident saying that. That's bold. I don't... Nobody else has to agree with me. That's fine. It's a great I album. just feel that it creates a a world and environment that is is very special as far as music goes. You know, okay. Ironically, we're going to talk about empathy later on. Yes. Yep. Okay, and we are going to get to those two stories that we uh, 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 promised that we would in the last Sovereign Tech X that we that we came out with last week. Um, I mean, it's a, okay. So, so Empath is a very positive album, to be sure. It is, uh, yes. which is you know that that's that gives it a lot of points. It's it's an album about personal growth, mm-hmm. transformation, and overcoming hardship, while yeah. acknowledging that hardship is always going to exist. Yeah, um, it's really how we deal with it that defines who we are. Yeah. No, right on. I mean, that's that's the thing with Devin Townsend. Like, I love so much of his messaging. He, he's really, he's something else. That's why I listen to it so much, because there's <laughs> very few artists out there that put out music with the positive and introspective music that Devin does. And yeah. I know that he's only doing it to try and express his own journey, mm-hmm. but it really speaks to me, which that's is okay. why I listen to it all the time. Yeah, most great writers are trying to do that. So Yeah. Yeah, it's not like something kiss would try to do but <laughs> i mean i think they're expressing themselves you know but <laughs> well anyway <laughs> um you know it's funny you say that though i, I want to take a moment i got a couple things we want to open with here uh it's funny you say that because i said to you last night we were trying we we're relaxing really we were working on projects but um i listen so so and i still can't believe this that it's fucking it's been 20 years um i came up and i said you know it's like the uh evanescence released the 20th anniversary uh version of remaster of fallen their quote-unquote first album i mean they really they had like a quasi-christian album before that but that doesn't count but this is their first album we'll say first you know major album uh and i listened to the whole thing straight through last night and i mean i was just floored at how great that album is and i said yeah. to you i said you know if there's like a top 10 list of albums in history like best ever that's easily in the top 10 because song for song like everything you're getting there it's so it's genuinely dynamic however in some ways like and it is about you know when you're describing what what devin townsend's empath was like 
Um, I almost feel like this is kind of the antithesis of it, but the same. Like it's it's the, it's the flip side of the coin because I don't think there's anything happy really. Yeah, at it's all kind of it. a depressing album. Kind and, of, yeah. You know, this is one of the first two albums that I ever purchased as a CD. Actually, <laughs> what was the first? The first was Avril Lavigne's um, breakout album. All right, I mean, it might not make. The top ten greatest albums of all time. It was pretty good. Probably not. It was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. good. It was good. But Evanescence was the second CD I ever purchased. Yeah. And, yeah, I imagine that listening to it now, remastered, with all of those, you know, younger memories, it would be a really great album, you know, just for the nostalgia alone. Yeah. I mean, it definitely encapsulates a time and an attitude. You know, we're talking 2003. Or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it even came out a little before that. Well, and anyway, I'd have to look up the actual date. I just know this is the 20th anniversary edition. But there's a lot of talent in that band. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, all right, a couple things. Like, I feel like this album was always amazing. Um, I've said many times, like around when it came out, or at least when my buddy, my my best friend at the time, ta- at the time, his name was Spock, or that was his nickname anyway. Uh. I swear to you, there were months. It was months that that was the only album that played in the CD player. You know, this is, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe there were some MP3 players out there, but still the world ran on CDs at the time. Um, and I, I mean, and, and you never got bored of it because, again, it's just so dynamic. Everything in it is so deep, and there's like so many stories being told. It did not a, I, I it just, it, it's an unbelievable album. Yes. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in fact, I heard things in the remaster I've never heard before. Like, My Immortal, not that I ever needed to hear that song again in my life, but I never noticed that at the end of the song, and who knows how long it's actually going throughout the song, but at the very least at the end of the song, you hear Morse code, and it's doing SOS, SOS. Um, which is so, I mean, to me, makes that song ten times sadder. Uh, but man, that's just a, just an incredible album. They never did anything like that. I mean... I, I know they've made other albums. I know all their albums do well. I listen to all their other albums. But none of those other albums compare. Like, they don't even come close. Uh, and I don't know if that's because Ben Moody was there and then left, who was kind of the kind of a song or you know songwriter, musician, what? I don't know. But, man, that was a great fucking album. Agreed, yeah. Excellent so, album. Yeah, so there we go. We've got two albums out there that, uh, that, that people can check out. <laughs> <laughs> we opened it up with music anyway. Even Not that I didn't we really planned plan this. It. No, I didn't. I just noticed that you're wearing... What are you wearing underneath uh, that, that, that hoodie? Not much. Oh, no way. I like it. Uh, let, <laughs> it doesn't you happen to, to see? Yeah, yeah. Holy hell. Okay. All right, well, turkey's done. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Right, let's um let's move on anyway <laughs> gotta put a chaser on that uh, uh yeah all right so this is uh <laughs> sorry sorry folks I, he I'm, always gets distracted i'm trying to pull this one together uh <laughs> okay um right so so this is the first time <laughs> i'm trying to try totally change Right. This is not the first time you've made this about my breasts. Uh, no, 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 it's not. Uh, <laughs> you were so fucking hot. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, right. This is the first time. This is. I want to. I want to kind of commemorate the moment. I mean, it's not the first time I've seen your breasts. But <laughs> 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 we're going to commemorate the moment anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
That wasn't at an Evanescence show. That was at a Hailstorm show. No, no, um, no. So, okay. So, <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, so this is the first time that uh, I am recording this show on a Windows 11 machine. Um, I, I'm very, very sad to report that my long-running Windows 7 laptop is no longer running Windows 7. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> How are you feeling about that? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked, because honestly, it, it fucking sucks. And and I can't... Um, yeah. I mean, we won't spend a ton of time on this, but I just... I really... You know, talk about empathy. This is something yeah. I... I no, like I, I, or I mean, minus you. Like I really don't feel like. I, I maybe just people can't understand. I just I don't feel like I've gotten any like. Or I I don't feel empathized with about this. Like I don't think people under people don't get it. You know. Nobody's uh, standing up for Windows Ten the way that you did. Or Windows Seven. Or Windows Seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I used Windows Ten for a while too. You know, and that that was okay, but. But when Windows stopped supporting 7, you were oh. genuinely depressed. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I could keep running this. You know, I could have kept Windows 7 on here. There, there's safe ways to, to run it. I think even some people were asking about it in, uh, in the old Telegram group. Um, like, I, I was running Zero Patch. I was running... Um, I had Firefox one version 115 running for a little while, which is a legacy version that I ran off of PortableApps.com. Which is really, if you run, if you want to run software off of Windows Seven right now, if you still happen to have it, just use PortableApps.com because they're validating all the installs because they know how many people are still running Windows Seven, and so they validate the installs to make sure you're getting a supported version of whatever software you end up getting, and it also auto updates all of it, which was not a common feature of Windows Seven overall. Um, but I did also use Waterfox that was still. Um, that was still using Windows 7. I was using Proton VPN, which still supports. You can you have to download an older version, but it's not an insecure version. Um, you know, to have a VPN on there running Windows 7. I mean, there's I could have kept doing it, but there were just a lot of things where it was running into walls, and I basically had to use two laptops. Where, you know, I'd have to carry around two laptops because I needed one that could run, you know, Chrome and a bunch of Chrome extensions and everything. And then I need the one that I actually want to get work done, you know. So I was essentially carrying around a Chromebook and and you know in my Dell uh, Latitude seventy four eighty, um, and, and that just that you know I can't keep doing that. <laughs> it's just not tenable. And I wanted to get it down to one machine. And so finally, I just bit the fucking bullet. And I was like, okay, Windows eleven. Here we'll go all the way to Windows eleven. The interesting thing is, is that when I got this laptop, it originally was running Windows ten, and the license. Because I thought that this quote-unquote window had closed for the upgrade cycle, but the license for Windows 10 uh, was valid all the way up to Windows 11. So I didn't even, I had a license I could have used for it, but it's official Windows 11. Of course, I'm running a Skylake processor, and that's not officially supported by Windows 11, so I had to, I had to run um, uh, Rufus to, but all of this worked out really well. I might talk about it on a Q&A or something. Anyway, the bottom line is, I felt it necessary that, you know, if I was going to have one machine to carry around, it was going to have to be something more modern. I sure as hell wasn't in a position to buy a MacBook as much as I would have enjoyed that. Um, but this is really sad because running Windows 11, Windows 11 is a piece of fucking shit. Like, like it's, and, and it's only gotten worse. Like there are, like, 
there's no reason. This is a quad core, like 16 gig of RAM processor here. This is plenty powerful. There is no reason that just using Windows Explorer, opening up a folder should take any amount of time whatsoever. It sure as hell never did under Windows 7. And now, like, I sometimes have to wait, a, you know, like 10 to 15 seconds. That's a lot of time for a computer and when you're doing, you know, file management. Like, that, that's a crazy amount of time. Frankly. It is, yeah. That's a transfer speed. That's not an open speed. Um, so, there, and, and part of that, I think, has to do, there's some, like, you really have to stop OneDrive from automatically starting. Um, and anyway, I did that. It seemed to have sped things up a bit, but this is terrible. The reason I'm so sad about it, the reason I haven't gotten any empathy about it, or, and maybe people just don't understand, is with Windows 7, in, in some ways even to Windows 10, like, Windows functioned in an incredibly similar way for almost 30-some-odd years. You know, that's a huge chunk of my life. Even though large swaths of that life, I was also using Linux, BSD, and, um, you know, and macOS, you know, different versions of macOS, even like macOS 8 and so on. Um but but this this really affected me because I had I've the over for probably over a decade now yeah well over like almost fifteen years I had a a workflow like a mind flow of how I got shit done everything that I did was on my computer you know like everything I'm into you know DVDs Blu-rays comic books music you know just about anything you could think of you know a lot of it was in my computer and I just had a set process. Uh, with Windows and 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 that just completely went away when Windows 7 died and and not only that but now I mean as I'm experiencing the horror like this is a online first operating system and that's fucking terrible like that that that's that's anathema to oh me. the horror no it really is like because everything you know everything you're doing is getting you know is, is ultimately like okay how can this get to the cloud how can this get to the cloud and that that's shit you know, that's crap, and it takes up way too many processes. But anyway, yeah, um, I appreciate you, love, for, you know, really kind of empathizing with me on this. I mean, it's been genuinely... I know some people think I'm being facetious or something. No, you don't... Like, people just don't get it. Like, this really affected me deeply and, like, affected my, in a very real sense, my entire way of life. Yeah, I mean, an operating system, I think, is a tool... Yeah. Is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's more than that too because it's it's also in a way your livelihood. Right. You have to operate with that operating system. Yeah. And and for something that's so reliable and stable and has been there your entire life to just suddenly have the carpet pulled out from beneath its feet like right. that must be jarring. Yeah, exactly. And especially when you're somebody who's like who historically had been so passionate about tech in general. Right. You know? Like you really give it like this is a part of your life. You know, it, it's it's like, um, I don't know, it's like somebody who works on gasoline engines and then suddenly has to work on, you know, Teslas or something. Yeah, it's like, why do we keep arcades open? All the games there are antiquated, but, like, it's more fun to play games at location right. when there's all that, you know, light and sound and the environment. Like, right. It's just, it's a special experience, and you can jump from game to game in real life. Like, it, there, I'm just saying, like, if arcade suddenly went away because oh we all have nintendo switches we don't need that yeah yeah. like i think there would be a lot of people that would genuinely be sad yeah 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 
Yeah, no, totally, totally. Um, I mean, because again, it's like, no, this is how I go to experience games. This is how I've gone to experience games for mm-hmm. 40, 50 years, you know, when you're talking arcades. And that's completely legitimate, you know? And there's no, uh, you know, again, part of what makes it so bad with Windows is no one was asking for them to do any of this. No one other than investors, I guess. Like, nobody was asking Microsoft to change anything. No, I would have lived my entire life using Windows 7. Right! I loved it. Right! I grew up on it. It was perfection. Everybody else, you know, that's my age or older. Yeah, like, everybody admits, you know, I mean, maybe some people are fond for XP or whatever, but, I mean, you can go read stories, and I've already talked about this on on episodes in the past, so I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but just, like, you can go, like, go to websites and and look up like best ranked versions of my, of Windows, and it's always going to be either seven or XP that wins that, and most of the time it'll be seven because it had everything: sixty four bit architecture. I mean, like it had it. There was no part of the future it wasn't ready for, it, and oh, this just sucks. It's turned me into an Apple guy again, you know, because I'm just I'm I'm just so pissed about it. Uh, anyway, yeah, the romance with Windows is gone. Yeah, I mean, it was always a, you know, it was a rocky romance. You know, it, it was always a marriage on, 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 you know, kind of teetering on the edge. But <laughs> Right, but now they've gotten rid of your favorite yeah, thing right, about now, Windows. Yeah, but now the sex is gone, you know? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> it's, and it's like, well, what's left, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyway, it, it, it's really bad. It, and it's been affecting me. This is, this is one of, like, a string of things. And, you know, I guess a lot... You know, I'm 42 years old, right? And everybody talks about midlife crisis shit and all like that. No, I, I don't need... A, I don't have a midlife crisis. I can adapt to anything, you know? It, it's just... There was no call for this. You know, like, this wasn't... I don't feel like I'm... I was missing out on something or whatever or that life passed me by. No, I just didn't really want it to change. And well, you're not the only one, right? There's plenty of other Windows 7 users. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Steve Gibson, you know, greatest of all time. He's still using Windows 7 on some machine. Um, yeah, there, there's there's still lots of people that do it, and I applaud them, and bravo. And again, the only reason I really did it is, you know, I just, I don't need to be running six computers anymore, you know? And, and I wanted to, you know, again, pare it down to, like, one machine, and... Yeah, so it was just, it was time, and now, unfortunately, you know, here we are. And there's lots of little things that require, that that Linux just isn't going to do for me, that I need on a go-to laptop. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it's the choice. It's either, you know, modern Windows or MacBook. Eventually, I'll just go MacBook, but for right now, this is where we're at. Um, so you hear that, Windows? We're not happy. Yeah, no, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) Dissatisfied customers. Completely, completely. And, well, anyway, there's so much I could talk about modern Microsoft, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We have two stories that we are going to get into that we want want to talk about. Um, I do want to say quickly, just before we get into those, um, I just released a Taste of Q&A episode, uh, which was the entire episode that I did on the uh, Israel-Hamas war um, that was originally for patrons only, but the patrons were like, holy fuck, you got to get this out there. This needs to be public, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, fine. Um, And I've already gotten great response on that. I'm really honored by that. Um, But folks can go and and check that out if they want to. And I'm really proud of you for putting that out. Thank you. 
That was hard. It was very hard to do. Yeah, I know. It took you three to- three tries. Yeah, it was. To it was three it. times. Like that, that that took hours and hours to record because I would go like thirty some odd minutes and I would stop and say, "No, this sucks." You know, like this isn't what I want to say. This isn't. And I, I think the third time I got it to a point that's for me passable. You know, um, but it's an hour long conversation on it all. And anyway, uh, those that have listened to it so far, again, appreciate your your feedback on it yeah i think it was really beautiful thank you what you said yeah i I hope everybody enjoys it thank you yeah so that'll be that'll probably that's probably the last thing in the feed before this episode uh as this gets released so anyway all of that all that preamble out of the way (laughs) people don't want to hear me crying about windows 11 let's uh let's talk about what, what do we got here we got yeah, yeah so last, last week when we did our Sovereign Tech episode, mm-hmm. um, we had promised multiple stories, only getting to one of them, I think. Yes, we, we talked about sex for about um, an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> rock and roll. Yeah, we did talk a lot about music, that's true. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, these are the other two articles that we did not get the chance to cover last time, because we talked too much. So... <laughs> I think, um, should we just jump right into them? Yeah, so this one's from Newsweek. Uh, and, and you know, a slightly older story, 2015, but I think it's bringing up a very interesting subject. Why As we you... said last time, evergreen, evergreen yeah, articles. totally evergreen. I mean, I, I have a folder of bookmarks, bookmarked, uh, uh, you know, stories. That's huge. That, that goes all the way back to 2012. Like <laughs> when Sovereign Tech started. And some of those stories I'd actually still like to get to. So, yeah, totally. Um, well, this is a great opportunity, I think. Yeah, yeah, Sovereign yeah. Sovereign Tech X. Yes, where we can talk about literally anything. Yeah. However it goes. Exactly. So why don't you, Ellen, if you're willing to read this, let's do it. Okay. Uh, so as Brian said, this article's from Newsweek. It's titled, Human Beings Are Not the Master Species, But the Servant Species. Andrew Lindsay, Oxford animal theologian. Woo, that is a bold statement. That's already bristling some listeners, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but let's, uh, let, let's keep rocking. All right, let's hear what he has to say. So the interviewer is asking, would you bury a golden retriever? Yes, replied Reverend Lindsay. A cat? The Oxford academic again responds in the affirmative, but this time with a mutinous look. He knows from bitter experience where this conversation is heading. A goldfish? I can see your headline now, he says. The barmy theologian who'll bury your pet fish. Does the idea of conducting some form of service for a goldfish seem absurd to you? It sounds weirder than it would for an elephant or a chimpanzee. And what is the rational basis for that assertion? I suppose it has to do with intelligence and the social circles frequented by the deceased. So, this is Lindsay speaking. Mm -hmm. You have to ask what you are doing at a funeral service. You're thanking God for the life of the animal or human being and commending a life into the hands of God. So, the interviewer then asks, a beetle? (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay says, allow me to reorient this discussion ever so slightly. Here, let me pause on that. Like, yeah, this is always what happens. Clearly, we're, we're talking, like, this guy is getting at, and it, this is a short piece, so we're going to read yep. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the uh, uh, Lindsay is a theologian, okay? Mm-hmm. And he's getting at the point that, no, you know, like animals deserve uh, burial rights or whatever. You know, that, that that's sort of the example that's getting laid out here. Now, anytime someone says that animals deserve XYZ treatment, it's so common for the, uh, uh, shall we say, the conventional person, the you know, the, the interviewer in this case or whatever, to go, well, what about ants? What about insects? What about this, right? They always go to the extreme. Instead yeah. of describe, instead of like discussing the nuance of all the different types of life and the complexity of life. Go yeah, ahead. well, I just want to be specific here. He's not just arguing for burial rights no, right. for animals. He said, "You're thanking God for the life of the animal and commending a life into the hands of God." Right. So I guess we can just mention this here, and we'll get into a more in-depth discussion later on. Mm-hmm. But I really love what he's saying. I love the heart of what he's saying, despite not believing in God, you know, quote unquote, like the, the, the sky daddy, white man in the clouds kind of God. Right. Um, but I do feel like there is a really empathetic sentiment that he's putting out there, um, you know, cherishing the uniqueness and specialness of life. Yeah. Any life. Yeah. Let's keep reading. Sure. So, uh, allow me to reorient this discussion ever so slightly. From God's perspective, every creature is loved, or it is no creature at all. I'm not saying we have a duty to pick up every dead animal and complete a funeral service for them. The interviewer says, that would be fairly (laughs) time-consuming. Think of the ants alone. Death is woven into the fabric of existence. Death deserves acknowledgement. It's easy to mock, as Andrew Lindsay is all too aware. The world's leading animal theologian, who lectures on ethics at Oxford, where he is, atten- he is attached to St. Stephen's College, Lindsay, 63, who has professorships at other universities, including Chicago, is no stranger to ridicule from the British tabloids. Inconveniently for his critics, the Anglican priest who meets me at his house in Oxford is a highly intelligent and articulate proponent of the theological case for more compassionate treatment of his fellow creatures. The founder and director of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics offers the animal rights movement the kind of serious academic muscle that Germaine Greer provided for feminism in the 60s. So the interviewer asks, what is the Lindsay Doctrine? The advocation of progressive disengagement from cruelty. If God so loves the world, non-rational creatures must have a look in too. Human beings have a responsibility of a kind that mice or giraffes don't. We are not the master species, but the servant species. Our power should be exercised in looking after creation. You're nodding your head there, I see. Yeah. Do you um, have comments? I do. And and I've actually, I've written about this in the Sovereign Technica newsletter. I did this three-part series on, and you can find it on my Medium page. Just go to nwo.red. You can find all this stuff. Um, I did a write-up about, I mean, and I only mentioned this like in parentheses, you know, saying that this would have to be a much larger discussion. And I guess to some degree we're going to be able to, to, to have it. Um, but there is a very famous verse in Genesis that says, you know, this is after the creation event, after the seven days, uh, quote unquote days. 
And, you know, God is saying to Adam, and, or to Adam specifically, really, but Adam and Eve, he's saying, uh, I give you dominion over the earth and over the creatures of the earth. Now, there's a very popular uh, uh, denomination or really um, ideology or theology within Christianity. It's, it's particularly popular in the United States for reasons America uh <laughs> America America uh that that's called uh dominion theology and the the basic premise of that is we're human beings we can do whatever the fuck we want that that's really what it chalks up to is that we're in command of nature we don't have and dominion theology creeps its head up a lot when you have christians who are against say the environmentalist movement um where, you know, they basically, I mean, like Dominion theology, you know, kind of rears its head with the person who's, you know, driving, uh, I don't know. I mean, I drive a truck. I shouldn't say that. But but somebody who just doesn't give a shit about, you know, ecology at all. And it's like, no, no, God gave it to us. We use it how we want, you know, and whatever. And I shouldn't do that in a Southern voice either, because that, I mean, honestly, like that, that that's, <laughs> that's a very tired trope. Uh, <laughs> Southern people are not inherently anything. So, yeah, but I hear what you're saying, that there are some people out there who think that the earth is ours because we're the superior species right. and we should just do whatever we want with it. Right. When what the... Uh, what Lindsay is describing is more along the lines of like we were given this treasure, this mm -hmm. planet that provides to mm -hmm. us. We should take care of it like a garden. We should tend yes. it, you know. Yeah, and and so and that's and that's the point that I made in my series on naturism was that when it says he gave, you know, that God gave man dominion over the earth, it's exactly how Lindsay. I like the way he puts it. We're not the master species; we're the servant species. Yeah, Meaning, we're the caretakers. We're exactly. It was not as I can do whatever I want. That's why the word dominion fucking sucks. It was no. You're here to take care of all this, and that really, like, you can't when you accept that Torah specifically, which Genesis is a part of, is really pointing at humans being a co-creative species with with the infinite or whatever term you want to use, Ein Sof, go down the list, you can't not come to the conclusion that when it says, I give you dominion over the earth, that it's describing, oh no, I am co-creative. And, and, and being a co-creator gets into biodiversity, you know, like fl life flourishing, you know, and life doesn't flourish very much with Oil spills and concrete and cutting down forests. You got it. Bingo. Yeah. yeah. So you, you can keep going. But I just, I, I, his interpretation is very Jewish and spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just want to voice that um, I, I also agree with his perspective that mm -hmm. like, even though these animals, you know, they might not be as intelligent as we are or mm -hmm. have the ability for self-reflection that we do. Right. Or, you know, they're not they're not speakers of their thoughts. They can't communicate them to us, but right. they still matter because they're a part of the ecosystem. They're a part of life. Yes. And that is important to protect. Yes, Absolutely. Um, and we could certainly talk about why, but go, go ahead and keep keep rocking. Okay. So Lindsay continues. Lindsay proposes the establishment of a body called AAA, Animal Abusers Anonymous. 
We're all guilty either through products we use, food we eat, or taxes we pay, um, which I kind of wonder about that. Are we guilty for paying taxes if we're kind of forced into it by the threat of a gun? That, that's, always a, that's always a tough argument, <laughs> uh, but go ahead. So I think self-righteousness zeal or self-righteous zeal is entirely inappropriate. When there were protests against the animal laboratory in Oxford, I didn't participate because there was violence and illegality. So he's complaining about eco-terrorists. Yeah, it he's, sounds like. he's basically saying that nobody can have that holier-than-thou attitude when it comes to protecting animals because mm -hmm. we're all partially responsible for the cruelty that occurs against animals sure. in whatever lifestyle choices we decide to choose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> those in live who those who live in glass houses should not cast stones. Okay. A tireless scourge of the notion of animals as meat machines. He says he takes encouragement from the broadening disquiet aroused by abattoirs. I think that's what that word is. Abattoirs, intensive farmers, and killing for sport. My research for this meeting involved consulting literature such as Communicating with Animals by Arthur Myers. It includes poems written by pets and transmitted telepathically. Oh boy, okay. One verse, composed by Bell, a Labrador from Vancouver, includes the line, The wind is so strong that I can't hold on, Brenda. Wow. Yeah, that's okay. fascinating. Lindsay, who in 2001 was awarded a Doctorate of Divinity by the then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, does not belong in such unorthodox company. That said, our conversation was not without its surreal moments. At one point, I did ask, can a prawn sin? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so basically, saying that Lindsay isn't into animal telepathy, like that's not what he's arguing for. But um, what he's espousing is so on the fringes, it yes. falls into that category. Which is amazing that that's the fringe, but yes. Right. I mean, animal telepathy is probably, I would say, more strange and uh, far-fetched idea than this, you know, Lindsay doctrine. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the author is just saying that, like, there's not many people interested in this line of thinking. Right. Okay, so can a prawn sin? Absolutely not. But beings with the capacity to suffer have the capacity to be wronged. They also possess some degree of cognitive ability and some sense of self-awareness. Unlike Tottenham fans. <laughs> Experience suggests I should not comment on that, says Lindsay. I'm not sure. What's Tottenham? I, not... I think it's some sport. I'm okay. not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Tottenham is either. Yeah, so, if you know, email us. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> q22 at nwo.red. Um, so I want, I want to pause on that for a second. Okay, there's two problems here. Now, this comes from him being a Christian. I'm not saying that's inherently a problem. Maybe it is. But there, there's, two, <laughs> there's two issues here. Uh, one is, you know, so even the question, can a prawn sin? Sin is a dicey subject. Okay, now he's, and, and part of the reason I say that is, Lindsay responds with absolutely not. And the reason that he's saying that I mean, granted, I'm kind of guessing, but, you know, I have a doctorate of divinity, too. I know the deal. Okay. Um, the reason he's saying that is because of original sin, meaning that, no, a prawn didn't commit original sin. A prawn, 
wasn't given commands in the garden, as far as we know, you know, from a sky daddy that said, do this, 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 or this, this, this will happen, you know. And so that's why he's saying that it can't sin. But I have a little bit of a problem with that. Partly because, and, and he's even saying it, that they also possess some, or what does he say? Absolutely not, but beings with the capacity to suffer have the capacity to be wronged. They also possess some degree of cognitive ability and some sense of self-awareness. Okay, so the issue with that would come into, and I'm sure Lindsay would agree that there's this all operates on different degrees. Like there's different degrees of, shall we say, sapience, as I call it. Not necessarily intelligence, but sapience. And like dolphins. So we know, we know dolphins will engage in the act of rape. Okay. So now for there to be rape and, you know, your average people who aren't on the fringes like Lindsay and people who are into animal telepathy do not, uh, I mean, we're talking genuine oceanographers and all that, you know, people that, that they're the, the quote unquote real deal and legit and could be on the Discovery Channel or something. Not that that means anything anymore. But they, you know, they say, no, they, they describe it as dolphins raping. The funny thing is, you also get people who don't think dolphins, or you don't, that don't think animals besides humans deserve shit, whether it's rights or all this stuff. They will also say, yeah, no, dolphins rape. They're animals. They're terrible. You know, it's like, wait, 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 wait. But don't you realize what you're saying? If you're saying that they're raping, that means that the other dolphin that that's getting raped, it's rape. So that means they didn't consent. That's exactly what you're saying by using the word rape. And consent is a conscious act, not instinct. It's a conscious act. And so, but you know, is rape a sin in most people's context? Even Jews who have a different idea of sin would say yes. And so for him to, you know, I mean, it's, it's splitting hairs a little bit, but for him to say that, oh, no, no, no like, a, you know, a prawn can't sin. No, there, I, I, there are animals that could do what we would call sin. Now, again, just to be abundantly clear, um, I don't believe in God. I don't, um, I think the concept of sin is wildly misunderstood. And I thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. And I do not attribute like any, any, uh, uh, there's no conventional concept of sin that I am uh, espousing or agreeing with whatsoever. So, but I'm just speaking like within their argument, within Lindsay's argument. And I, and I think there's a little bit of problem with that, but that's okay. Like, I, I just wanted to have the clarity on it, but we can, what do you, do you have thoughts or do you want yeah, to Yeah. I mean, I would love to continue talking more about sin if, if you want to spend another minute on it. Oh but boy. Okay. I just think that, so, so could, is it fair to say that the idea of sin as we know it today is more of a modern religious invention. Oh, totally. I mean, original sin, like primitive Christians, and when I say primitive Christians, I mean Christians from like the first couple centuries CE, the ones that actually compiled the New Testament or, or that were writing it and the books extant of it, um, they didn't believe in the concept of original sin. That's a complete creation um, by uh, Augustine, by St. Augustine. Okay, but what about sin itself? Not original sin. Just sin? Yes. Um, I mean, sin, so there, sin is a word, sin is a term, sin is a thing that is discussed, that is talked about within the Old Testament. Um, what do you mean by modern, I guess I'm, I'm asking? Well, 
So I think that when people think of the word sin, mm-hmm. they think of, um, you know, like just performing actions that are by large majority considered to be wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe not necessarily. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think there's a lot of things considered to be sin today yeah. that are just products of instinct or um, like behavior patterns that have been passed down through generations. Sure. Uh, I mean, yes. Okay. So the idea of, of sin overall is, or what we think of, so when we say sin today, usually that, like you said, is it's inferring that it is an evil deed. Correct. Yeah. And, and it can even be something as innocuous as like smoking weed. Oh, that's a sin. Right. Like, how yeah right where does it say in the bible you can't smoke weed yeah nowhere uh so (laughs) are you sinning against god by doing that yeah by partaking in a substance yeah right that Uh, alters your state of consciousness yeah (laughs) right yeah um so that idea of sin as you engaged in an evil deed is a modern um well modern's a bad term it is a it is only a concept that's that's been around within the context of the texts we think of as the Bible. That's only been around for maybe twenty twenty five hundred years. Uh, maybe Which in the history of humanity is somewhat modern. Yeah, that that would ultimately still be modern. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it's a fairly new idea. Really, all sin. When the Old Test, New Testament, a bit of a different story. Bit of a different story. But that requires a lot of extrapolation. But in the Old Testament, whenever they're talking about sin, really what there's... I mean, there's specific actions that translators will call sin. But the actual interpretation, the spirit, shall we say, of it, of sin in the Old Testament, in in Torah and the Tanakh, is just saying something that goes against the life-bearing frequency of universe, of the universe that we live in. Okay, that's really what sin is. Because what's righteousness? Righteousness is following mitzvot. What is the purpose, mitzvot, which are the, like, the laws, Levitical law, kashra law, all these things. What are these laws for? These laws are for are literally for what's called tekumalom, which is repairing the universe, okay, and getting it into a perfect state where the lion will lay with the lamb and all this. Okay, so if that's what we know for sure is the righteous life, righteous being the antithesis of sin, what then is sin? Sin is not, like you said, smoking weed or doing these other things. Sin isn't even breaking the law. That's a little more of a complex subject. Sin is just an action that is working against the process of perfecting the universe. And that's really all that that means. And two things come out of that. Okay, one is none of that says there's a right and a wrong or a good and an evil because there is no right and wrong. There is yes, no good and evil. Right. Okay. Um, all of like this, the modern concept of sin is solely around really the concept of civilization. But there's an inherent problem in that, and that is civilization is so small. It's such a small scale. Okay, this is the part two, is, you know, we're talking about repairing the entire fucking universe 
we are talking about the largest possible scale that you can think of that your actions or that these frequencies perhaps are operating on. And so to say that a person, I don't know what, what used to be a very common sin 200 years ago, but fucking. So to say, to say that, you know, and, and this was considered such an egregious sin, you couldn't even mention it. Homosexuality? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you can read, especially in American texts, because America, uh, you can read in American texts where they'll say, like, the act that cannot be named. Every single time they're talking about sodomy, they're talking about uh, buttfucking when they say the action that cannot be named, okay? Um, and there's weird reasons why they even say that, but that, that's a separate conversation, too. Okay, so... Take butt-fucking, for example. No, butt-fucking is not going to... It's not going to damage the universe, you know, in, in, in any way, right? Like, I, I mean, that's just... But that that's the way you have to think about these things, even, on that larger scale. Go even ahead. the idea of premarital sex, I feel like, has been vilified to such an extent that that is not allowed at all. Oh, it's all. nonsense. Yeah, in, in, like, Christian or Catholic circles, like, yeah. the idea of premarital sex is anathema. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that's considered a sin in a lot of um, different denominations of Christianity. I would say most, perhaps not all, but um, but no, there's 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 no harm in that. Like, I, I mean, and and that again, that's a that's a modern invention. Um, we could get into where you know there were certain times, perhaps, where premarital sex could have been seen as a problem for like the health of a very small nation or something along these lines you know we could get into more anthropological concepts around it but no it has nothing to do because nothing to do with right and wrong right it has nothing to do with right and wrong because again like what is even marriage you know um all you know if we go back to kind of this again what what really what Lindsay is fighting against which is this dominionist theology right that you know, which comes out of Genesis. Okay, well then let's go to Genesis. What does Genesis say about the perfect relationship? Adam and Eve didn't get married. Not really. They went off together and lived together and, you know, go away from their parents. Like God describes it that way, but it's just an action. It's not some kind of, you know, service or anything that's all that that's given there. Okay. And you know, they were fucking, but you oh, yeah, know, they had tons of kids, right, but who, who the hell married them? No one, you know, and, and so, so again, like, um, um, uh, I mean, and, and it's funny because our laws used to understand this. That's why you have like common law marriages and all of this, because, you know, what if there's no one around to marry you, but you've lived with a woman for, you know, like you, you're like Henry David Thoreau out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, and, and, and there's no one to, to, to marry you, but you've been say with a woman, not the throw was, but if you're with, if you're with a woman, you've been with her for ten years. Like under the, if you believed in God, under the eyes of God, how would that not be a marriage? You exactly, know, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so, but but then by you know more more particular Christian definition, oh, that's premarital sex because you didn't have a priest there, or or you didn't have a, a pastor there, and it's like, oh, and, and so what? You you know, and. Yeah, um, this is what people don't get, you know, is that it, it and, and, and a part of it, I, I'll just, I'll end off with this and we can keep getting into, into what uh, Lindsay has to say. You know, this concept of good and evil, it really comes out of translations into other languages and of, of these ancient texts, of these biblical texts 
and people don't want to admit that. So anyway. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder, because there are a lot of actions that people perform that bring them joy or pleasure mm-hmm, or whatever mm-hmm. that are considered sins. Mm-hmm. And it's really just the religious establishment that punishes people for performing those actions. Yes. There is no, you know, hellfire raining down. No, right, right. And and we even, you know, I briefly mentioned this in the last episode you and I did when we had that hour and a half conversation around sex, that, you know, when we started talking about sex magic, that a lot of the priesthoods, the authoritarians in this sense, um, not all priesthoods have to be authoritarian, but in this sense, the priesthoods from Egypt to Rome to, you know, Greece, all, all over, they all knew. They knew the power of sex. And so, yeah, do you put stipulations on sex? Oh, you can only have it once you're married. And that has to be agreed upon by the priest and, you know, and all this. Like, I mean, you can see how the system stacked against you in this sense. And it all comes down to they weren't playing by those rules. They just didn't want everybody fucking and potentially creating a better world. So (laughs) anyway, uh, Yeah, and if I can just say one more thing about Mm -hmm. sin. I mean, if you study animals in general, if you study biology um, and pay attention to animal behaviors, you'll notice that there are many species that engage in what we would consider to be sinful acts, like rape, like murder, like, um, you know, killing babies, stealing. Yeah, or orgies, honestly. Or orgies, yeah. I mean, bonobos, you know, engage in orgies. There's, there's and homosexuality. Yes. Homosexuality is wildly prevalent in the animal kingdom. Wildly yeah, prevalent. all of these things are. Yeah. So I'm just saying, if if there are all of these other species around us committing mm-hmm. these atrocities on a daily basis, mm-hmm. what makes it any different for us to perform those actions? Yeah. And what makes it specifically a sin? Yeah. Yeah, this especially considering what is said in this article about, you know, animals having some degree of self-awareness and self-consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to argue that that's what sets humans above other animals, okay, yes, maybe that gives us the responsibility of being a caretaker of the area that we live in mm-hmm. because we're aware of our surroundings and how that affects us. Mm-hmm. But that does not necessarily equate to like we're going to hell when we do these same actions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you're really hitting at something that's at least, I mean, it's only, it's way older than even this, but ideas that are hundreds of years old, you know, and we can go right back to the Enlightenment. But before we go, before I go there, you know, we go there, um, why don't we wrap up the story? Okay, so we're, yeah, so Lindsay is engaging, bright, amusing, and above all, sane. The mainstream church, he argues, will slowly become more active in its opposition to what he sees as institutionalized cruelty. I'm not a starry-eyed idealist. We're experiencing a gradual paradigm shift from the idea that animals are commodities to the idea that, as sentient creatures, they have dignity, values, and rights. The Christian church has made similar shifts on the rights of women and gays, and of the child. Things advance. This is where somebody like Richard Dawkins, say, gets religion so terribly wrong. He doesn't understand that the church is like a river and changes much as science moves on. He dwells on the worst of history, 
That's like judging secularism by Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot. Well, most Christians do that. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say. I like, judge secularism, yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you don't but, have to be a Christian to hate it. Yeah, <laughs> but continue on. <laughs> this tradition of ever-broadening compassion, he argues, is not finished yet. And thank goodness for that. Pope John Paul II condemned liberation theology. Pope Francis welcomes it. It is possible to witness some amazing reversals of attitude. And how, I ask him, can such transitions best be accelerated? Lindsay replies, I would suggest three things. Belief, perseverance, and the ability to live long enough. Yeah, kind of reminds me of my old saying of outlive the state. That's how you beat it. But <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, well, he's making a similar argument that yeah. these changes do come if you believe in them and you are able to be patient enough right. to, to see it unfold. Right. Yeah. Um, so do, do you have thoughts you want to share on this? Like overall? Yeah, I well, so just in this last few paragraphs that I was reading, um, I do feel hopeful in what he's saying, that mm -hmm. the church is starting to take a stance against what they see as institutionalized cruelty, which yeah. absolutely it is. I mean, there there are plenty of institutions spanning multiple different industries that rely on committing cruelty against animals in mm -hmm. order to achieve results or produce whatever they need to produce. Um, so the fact that people even religious people are starting to turn against that behavior and realize that it's atrocious. Um, I, I find that very hopeful. And, you know, we were just talking about how like sin and right and wrong, mm -hmm. our modern ideas of these are so off base and, you know, maybe there's no such thing as right and wrong. Um, I guess that also applies to what we're talking here, like cruelty to animals. Mm-hmm absolutely is not right or wrong but if we're you know beings of empathy if that's what keeps us together as communities as families as you know loving beings we should have that for the other creatures that we can see that that characteristic reflected in yeah yeah um no well said well said yeah, I I mean he's he's getting into he's setting a lot and and I get it. This is a very short piece. It's in Newsweek. You know, this is not this also is not a place to get into much nuance, quite frankly. Um No, they just provide the interview. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and you have to interpret yourself. Yeah, and and I'm I'm tempted to read more of his work. I mean, because he's falling into some other traps. He is, I mean, he, again, he's an Anglican priest, okay? So he's quasi-Catholic. Um, I mean, the idea that, you know, that, that religion evolves or particularly say that Christianity, that the church is like a river and changes, that's really, that's only true in things like Anglican, uh, Anglicanism. <laughs> it's hard to say for yeah, some reason. Yeah. Anglicanism, whatever. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's true there. It's true in denominations of Christianity where there is a centralized body you know, kind of like the College of Cardinals for Catholics, um, you know, or in like Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, where there's a body that has the ability to make 
um, shall we say, holy interpretations, sacred interpretations. Like they are the ones that say, no, this verse means this, you know, and you have to believe it because they are the church. Okay. Because um, the Bible, as most Christians understand, it doesn't change. Like it is no river. In fact, that's, that's what Protestantism arguably is all about, is the idea of going back to what it was meant to be and that Catholicism and all these other churches just fuck shit up and yada yada. So, um, so his, his, I mean, like I appreciate what he's saying and yeah, you can have very different ideas between, you know, JP the two, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, you know, uh, Benedict the 16th, right? Um, and even Pope Francis today, you know, you can have very different interpretations. Sure. And that, but that, again, that really only works. His idea really only works within these denominations that have that where the Bible isn't the, the source of all truth, but where the church is the source of all truth. Those are two very different things. Okay. Um, so there's that. I mean, I love what he's saying. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm being very critical. No, I love the, the the abstract notion that he's laying out there. I think that's wonderful. Well, I love that you're providing the criticism on religion because you have a lot of knowledge in that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, ultimately, I chose this article to cover because I also have very strong feelings about, you know, the the heart of the message here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is that, you know, cruelty to animals is something that we need to get away from. Yes. Yeah, I I think, you know... you're totally right. And and it, again, it's great in whatever ancient or shall we say traditional or legacy institution, whether it's the church or whatever, for them to, quote unquote, <laughs> hate to use the term, but whatever, it doesn't mean anything anymore anyway, but for them to wake up, you know, or for them to come to evolve, to come to this realization is wonderful. And I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Um, I mean, part of the problem is, is that he's, again, he's arguing from like that they have value and rights. You know, now for him to say dignity, ah, now, now there's a word that makes sense. But to say rights, you know, that's like that's like good and evil. There's no good and evil. There's no rights like that. Yeah, that's another human created idea. Exactly. Like what a cat doesn't understand rights at all. No, you know? it's just, you know, the strong survive, the fast survive, the right. cunning survive. Yeah, exactly. And those who are less than that, well, maybe they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, does the, does a cat have the right to scratch your face off? No, but it, it thought it was, it thought it was funny. So that's okay. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, no, like, okay, it's your toy. <laughs> or, or, or self-defense, you know? Right. Right. And I'm not saying it's okay, but yeah. And it could be self-defense as well, you know? And, and again, that gets into value and dignity. Um, and dignity ultimately comes from dignity is just a, a somewhat fancier term for respect, right? Yes. And respect is at the heart of all value. Respect is really the key word. And I, I, I do the same thing. In fact, we, I lifted the term from Patrick Stewart many years ago, the dignity of all species, which is a beautiful thing for, for Star Trek to teach, which is what he was talking about with his fish Lexington. Anyway, long story. But so this idea of dignity of all species, while there is no good and evil, there are things that promote life and things that destroy, right? There are things that are entropy 
and things that are anti-entropy, you know. And I think we all, or most of us, including the animals, want to live. Yeah, we all want to live. And hopefully we all realize how precious and rare life is considering, you know, the the expanse of the universe. Yes. And how few planets are out there that could harbor anything close to life. Exactly. Yes. So I'm bringing this up to say that if there were something that we could call good, that we could try to use that term for, like, okay, if they're like, yeah, but it's just so easy to know what's good and what's evil, right? You know, it gives us nice, simple rules to go through in life and be able to say, oh, there that's bad. There are no simple rules. No, there life. are not, right? But if there was one thing, and I've, I've argued this many times, I've done a whole uh, segment on it over a, a couple of years ago, or maybe it was three years ago now, but if there was one good, the one good would actually be biodiversity. Why? Because biodiversity allows for not just the promotion of life as in more life gets created, but it allows for resiliency of life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because if one virus or something comes through, but if there's a biodiversity in an area, it only wipes out a small section of the ecosystem as compared to all of it. Also, there is the chance that the remedy for sud for, for a virus or something like that could be within the more diverse areas that you know of. I mean, think of the Amazon, you know, where, where medicines have constantly been researched mm -hmm. from the unique life or rare life that exists there because right. of the biodiversity, the biodiverse nature of the ecology. Okay. So, or the ecosystem there. And so if there was a good promoting life, which is done through biodiversity, by having as much alive as possible, that's all you've got. And, and and this is why I think people take forever to get to this, because we talk about things as in, oh, good, bad, you know, sin, righteousness, um, you know, or, or uh, rights, you know, denying rights. Yeah, and, there's and always these dichotomies, these, like it's black or white. Yeah, these weird dichotomies that, again, are, are made up. They're not real. They're nowhere. You can't measure them. They don't exist. Um, you know, it's only until you get to, okay, wait a minute, what gives me the best chances to flourish as a creature? And what does that, again, I, in my, in my argument is, is entirely biodiversity, you know, allowing to live as much as can live. So is it in my best interest to let as many deer, as many cattle, cows, whatever, oxen, you know, to, to live actually? Yeah. It is. Um, and, you know, we could get into arguments over, yeah, but what about, like, species, you know, kind of overrunning or things like this? I mean, a lot of that stuff generally happens because of something that we as humans have done. Yep. We've brought invasive species to, to varying places, you know, like, we've fucked that up. We are not, that is not an argument from nature that you're making when you say that, you know, when you talk about overpopulation. Um, nature really does take care of itself in the end. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, humans have messed up the ecosystem so mm -hmm. badly. I mean, we've wiped out countless species since inventing civilization. Yeah. And not to mention the invasive species that you mentioned, you know? Yeah. Like, there are balances in populations that should exist that just don't. I mean, the best example of this that I can think of recently was when uh, wild a uh, population of wolves were reintroduced into, um, was it, which state park was it? Do you remember? 
Mm. Oh, I was going to say Yellowstone. Yellowstone, yeah. yes. Okay, yeah. so they, the wolves had lived there previously, mm-hmm. nat- naturally existed there previously. Um, humans wiped them out of the area. Then, you know, 100, 200 years later, whatever, we introduced wolves again. And it actually started changing the ecosystem entirely, like the mm-hmm. direction of rivers were reshaped because yes. there were so many animals that were eating the vegetation in the area that the river took on a certain shape. But once they were, you know, kind of culled by the wolves, um, the vegetation was allowed to thrive again and the shape of the rivers uh, was restructured. So I think that's just one small example, but there are hundreds and hundreds of others where humans have just altered the ecosystem in such an irreversible way. So I, I think you're right that, like, if there were an opportunity for us, for example, to, like, free all of the cows from farms. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, these are cows that humans have selectively bred over mm-hmm. hundreds of years. So they're not even the same cows that originally lived in this area. Secondly, like, there were more megafauna in the past. Right. And we also killed all of those. So... Now we have just, like, very few megafauna species. Right. And also the amount of biodiversity in general in the plant population has completely changed because we yes. we do monocrop farming a lot. Um, so there's just all of these things that are off off kilter as far as the ecosystem goes. So if we were to achieve a position as a society where we all collectively agreed like yes we don't want to commit cruelty against animals anymore Mm -hmm. and just let them do their thing the world is not the same world that they were meant to live in yeah yeah Uh, and not that there's like an intention for the planet necessarily but it's not what these species have evolved for over millions of years Mm -hmm. yeah no I, i agree with that completely um Another point I want to bring up is, you know, his uh, Lindsay's point. I really like what he said, you know, at closer to the beginning. We're, we're not the master species, we're the servant species. Right. I really dig that. Another big problem. I mean, I, I'm not a philologist, but language is such a big deal to me because we don't realize how much language maps our thoughts. You know, like it creates the map of our thoughts. It does. And... um. I mean, I could get into, I'm not going to, I could get into a big conversation around, you know, getting past language and where actions need to take supremacy, but that's a separate conversation that has to do with spirituality that can be had another time. Um, but something I learned a little while back was, and because I've always been curious of this, you know, I've always argued for... Well, one of the big problems we have is that we label all of humanity as Homo sapiens sapiens. And we have no differentiation. We have no, you know, there's no further breaking down of the genus. You know, there's no, uh, when, when we're all very different. I mean, arguably, we're all individuals and every animal is an individual. And really, there is no such thing as species. But to stick with some modern parlance here, okay. Um, I was I was wondering. I was like, yeah, but what did what did they call us before they came up with Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens sapiens and all this? And the original term wasn't Homo; it was animal, and that's that that that's literally what they 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 called it animal. Now, part of the reason they used the term animal, like it would be say animal sapiens. That's not what they 
went with. Um, there's a few different terms that were being proposed more at the time or that were used beforehand. Uh, this is, you know, enlightenment and pre-enlightenment. What do you got? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to interject and say that it, I think it's a fallacy to think that there was kind of a unified thing that people were called before, you know, Homo sapiens. Like, yeah. The scientific community was very disparate and spread out and not necessarily unified the same way it is today, where, like, you have curriculum that all have to meet certain standards and there's ISO and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, before, like, a hundred years ago or so, I think mm -hmm. scientific communities could, in many ways, be isolated from one another. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, I mean, this is, we're definitely talking pre-scientific revolution, you know, but, but these terms are starting to come up. And, you know, some of the original recommendations, again, were, was to use instead of homo, it was actually just animal. And, boy, do I wish they stuck with that. Because then that would have, I mean, part of the reason they did that was to say, you know, we're kind of the top of the chain, and so we are the animal. But then if it's the animal kingdom, at least we'd still be, in name, animals. You know, and that's the problem. Is we that, forget that we're animals no, right. a yeah, lot no, of the time. We're, it's not just, you're right. And, it, and it's more than even that, it's we're told we're not. We're told we're something special. Yeah, we're separate. We're, we're set separate. apart. Right, we're set apart. And, you know, I really, I know people would say, well, that's a small thing. What, you think you changed the world just by humans being called animals in their scientific nomenclature? Yeah. It would Actually, yeah, I think it would change things a lot. Like, like, oh, yeah, I am an animal. Right. Maybe I should have more compassion for the other animals. Exactly. I mean, even in school, when you're teaching this shit, not, not that schools are a great way to teach, they're terrible, they're prisons, but even in public school where you're teaching this shit, you know, for a kid to read, I am, an say say they went stuck with sapiens, I am animal sapiens. Like, a kid's going to put that together way better than an adult will, you know, but, man, it's just one of those things where, again, that that's kind of the other point. And this is where I feel like at the end of the day, I mean, again, I see his point about it being servant species, you know, but you you have to create that connection that we humans are just like the animals you know or at least we are a part of them yeah they we're are, a part of them they're yeah. a part of we're similar yeah yeah in yeah. that we are life forms you know right we're mammals we're creatures that evolved on this planet along with everything else right we didn't just get put here like in the adam and eve story right you know we we also have instincts. We also have feelings. Yes. We also have the ability to be wronged. Yes. Just like all of these other creatures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love, you know, in general semantics, I love Alfred Korzybski's point that really the only difference between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom, and this might not even be true for the rest of the animal kingdom, and even he would say that, what makes us different is that we, he's what he calls time binders, as in we pass on knowledge from one generation to the next. That's the only thing. It's not that animals are stupid. It's not that they can't, you know, that they're not conscious or sapient or whatever. It's that we figured out a way to pass it on. And that's the and that's the real differentiator. That even that that sidesteps the instinct versus conscious choice argument that often comes up, which even I play into sometimes. But I think that's that's a great way to look at it. But okay, so because we can pass down knowledge, we deserve special rights? Why? You know, like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, or because we can pass down knowledge, it's okay for us to do, to treat other creatures like shit? 
what? You know, that like that it doesn't doesn't make any sense. But again, most people don't consider Well most people life consider it they consider it an act of survival. Like most people sure. don't think that they would be able to survive sure. unless they were able to eat animals. Or we wouldn't be able to find cures for illnesses unless we were able to utilize animals for testing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. th- that kind of behavior. So I think there are people who recognize that it's cruelty to animals, but they feel that it's justified because we need to survive. And who cares if, you know, a few of the population of monkeys or cows or whatever gets killed because there's still more out there, but we need to put ourselves first. And like, not that I necessarily disagree with the idea of being selfish, Mm-hmm. Because I do feel that that's important for survival. Yeah, and we all want sure. we all want to survive. Yeah, but I I still don't feel that that is a proper justification for committing some sort of abuse against an animal that can clearly feel and think and form connections. Um, it just doesn't feel like enough of an argument. Yeah. So this this is where I like to flip. Now, I mean, fortunately, I don't run into too many assholes in my life, at least not that I talk to them. Um, or maybe you just don't get into this conversation yeah, with right, them. Yeah, right, right. But, but I have because I've been a vegetarian for so long. Yeah, well, this is where you get to flip the, the, the you know, argumentum ad absurdum on them. Because where they come after you and say, well, well what about the ants? You know, are you, do you not step on ants? You know, and all this. This is where you get to flip the script. And say, well, but I have to eat meat for survival. Or, like you, very well brought up, that, well, but we need animals for testing. Which, by the way, there's an entire new scientific revolution going on right now of how do we still get the same results without using rats anymore. Like, that, that is a big, big push in the scientific community overall through, around the world. Yeah. Minus China. Actually, just if I could for a second, yeah, please. when I was in college and I was taking a lot of these bioengineering courses, mm-hmm. there were people in my class who were working in laboratories where they had to like perform surgeries on rats mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there is a lot of discomfort around it. Yeah. Even if people don't like to talk about it or admit it, when they speak about performing experiments on rats, they really... There's like uh, something is unsettled inside of them and they just don't feel right about it. Sure. Well, as and I know we're going to talk about more about empathy in a minute. I mean, as I always bring up, rats also feel empathy like they experience empathy. They have the capacity for empathy. Um, so, you know, for like for a human to not feel so good about it. Yeah, I bet. Why? Because your empathy fields are both smacking each other and saying, what are you doing to me? You know, but yeah, right on. Um yeah, and, and if you see an animal that is exhibiting those traits mm-hmm. and clearly they're in pain and you're causing it, it just feels like a complete psychological, psychopathic disconnect for you to not respond and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, right on. So, yeah, so here, when you get into this kind of argumentation and somebody decides to go the ridiculous route and say, well, you don't step on ants, you know, do you? And all this. Well, you can, certainly not on purpose. R- right. But you can, exactly. But you can flip the script on them and say, so why do you eat, you know, why do you think animals, you know, can be 
we can be cruel to them or we can kill them or we can do whatever. And I think what you brought up would be the, the, where they go. Well, I need to eat meat to survive. It's the most nutritionally dense. It's this and that. They talk about that. Then they talk about, well, we need it to like test um, for medicines that help keep uh, other human beings alive and all of this. And this is where you get to go absurd. And you could, and, and I would just call them a Nazi and say, well, that's what the Nazis thought. They just used humans. You know, like, yeah, but like, ones that they thought were inferior in some way. Right, right. But but that but I'm just saying you're you're exactly right. But that's that's where you can flip the script on them. Um, fortunately, I haven't had many opportunities where I've had to do that to somebody. But you know, if someone wanted, <laughs> if you wanted to go that direction, I mean, again, that's what the Nazis did. And you know, in the quote unquote Western world, there was a, I guess to. to to, to run with Lindsay here, there was a come to Jesus moment in Colorado in the 80s where there was a massive ethical debate, hundreds of doctors, scientists, and everybody saying, is it even right? Is it ethical of us to use research from the Nazis, from the real Nazis from the 40s? Because this research, which, let's be clear, forwarded medical science by a century because it was done not on animals, not on plants, not on amoeba. It was done on humans, straight up. And the debate was there. Should we use this information? Like, is it even right to do that considering the horrors that we're engaged in to, to achieve it? Now, the ultimate answer was yes, we should use it because it's the only way to... Um, or, you know, it was a way of honoring the honoring lives, the lives that, that were lost, you know, in all of this. And and I understand, I, I really do understand where that where that's, you know, where that's coming from. But this was a massive ethical debate from the best and the brightest in the world around, is this okay to do this? Now, I'm glad that they were at least conscious enough to have that debate, you know, and, and to talk about it. And, you know... Uh, the human species, if I'm going to use that, does, you know, what, how did he describe it? Like rivers, it, it changes, okay? And, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just say this straight. I do think that probably in the next century, and I plan on being here for that, in the next century, I, I, I think that meat eating is going to go the way of the dodo. Like, it, it's, it's going to be so fringe. Um, well, at, at least let's hope that it goes back to local farms, right? Yeah, Not yeah. large-scale production. Yeah, I appreciate Lindsay's point that he's talking about cruelty. Not necessarily saying that, like, oh, it's not that you, you know, you can't eat meat. The problem is cruelty, right? Yeah. And so I know it's a bit of a middle ground, but go ahead. So when I have this conversation with people sometimes, um, usually what I've heard is that, like, Oh, there is no cruelty being exacted on animals. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't experience cruelty. They die so quickly. They don't feel the pain. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, that just doesn't feel like that good of an argument either. Because right. you're still ending the life of that animal. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, feelings are a whole problem in and of themselves. Um, like, right. What, like, what are these things? You know, what what is a feeling? Is a pain receptor 
what you think is a pain receptor activated you know like is that is that is that what pain is okay like, so the brain doesn't have time to recognize that its head has been disconnected right like the pain receptors don't have time to transmit that electrical right. signal right but still your intention was to end the life of a creature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and that is you know purposefully taking away that animal's opportunities to feel love to feel compassion yeah to you know enjoy the sunshine and the fresh air which are things that we all want yeah 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 right on um i want to be clear (laughs) i was not suggest i was saying you know just flip the script on people i was not actually saying that meat eaters are nazis if you thought that might want to do some soul searching because sounds like i struck something on you but that's not what i was saying um i'm not suggesting that I have beautiful friends, beautiful people in my life, heroes, all meat eaters. So, you know, like, <laughs> I don't, please don't, don't misconstrue my words. Um, but if you did, I usually find that when something hits you like that, something in your head. But yeah, ahead. yeah. So I guess just riffing off of what you said mm-hmm. um, and going back to what we were talking about in regards to right and wrong in the past, um, again, there there is no right and wrong here right um if as you say there is anything similar to right and that being biodiversity uh conversely you could make the argument that the only wrong is killing or death mm-hmm. and that is I'm, exactly what i've argued for over a decade yes yes <laughs> yeah and i'm not necessarily going to even take the stance and say like absolutely 100 percent killing is wrong right right but I am not going to ever try to justify it. And I am afraid for the person who does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's... A, it's, it's... Yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> we don't have to get right on. I, I think you said it, and you said it best. There's no need to expand. Um, yeah, so... I mean, this is interesting. For this to actually be a part of the conversation in Christianity, I am... I am admittedly, even though this is you know 2015 at least, um, I am imp- I'm impressed that this level of thought to you know life around uh, or to, to the earth is you know is, this these conversations are happening. And it's amazing. Yeah, I I'm also very happy that there is this sort of life promoting ideology starting to come out of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't even really matter to me where it comes out of, but I agree that, like, we can't be self-righteous mm-hmm. in thinking that we don't contribute to animal cruelty, because we all do, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some form or another, um, even just by supporting the system that is civilization as we know it, right. is in a way promoting animal cruelty. Right. Um, and I also think that it's important for us to try and reduce that wherever we can. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I'm not saying that we're angels in this either. Like, <laughs> I think you're an angel. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm just saying we're not perfect. No, We no. still contribute in some way to animal cruelty, but we really purposefully try to minimize that in every way that we can. Yeah. Except for you when it comes to flies in the house. You are pretty vicious. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but 
This is an opportunity for us to reconsider our relationship with every living creature. Yeah, I mean, and 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 this boy, you know, th- that's a great point to bring up. I want to I want to take just a moment on that. Then we we got to we have a thing. We we have another story. We're gonna do it. Yeah, We're gonna we do are. It. Okay. So this is really a. Oh man, this this is such a nasty, vicious little cycle. Okay, because. So why are flies a problem? Flies are problems because of like modern living standards. Well, okay. they they spread disease. Yeah, they spread disease. Right now, that's not the flies' fault. That's the disease's fault. You know, like if you're mad at mosquitoes for spreading malaria, it's not the it's not the mosquito. The problem is malaria. You'd have to ask malaria what the hell the deal is. All right. Okay. Well, malaria is <laughs> not a living being, first no, of all. Well, yes. And yeah. second of all, mosquitoes actually—they don't just take your blood; they also no. vomit a little in I, your fucking I, skin. Yeah. And why do they have to do that? Well, right. If you just want my blood, take it. Right. I don't care. You know, I've got more than <laughs> enough to spare. Right. <laughs> but, right. But the fact that they have to leave behind whatever they picked up previously—not cool. Yeah. Well. All right. There, there's another conversation we had around around <laughs> malaria, but we won't go there. Okay. Um, Another thing that was cured by an Amazonian plant, the chinchona bark. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Um, but so, but flies, like really, like being annoying. Okay. And not not just annoying, but life threatening among other things. I mean, part part of the problem, like, okay, a million flies are born. Great. As long as there is a nice, easy way for me to let you all out, you know, of my hut or whatever, you know, dynamite. But you used to be able to do that. Like, human structures used to consider these things. Now, human structures are, who gives a fuck, we'll call the exterminator. And Yeah, and and they also are completely self-contained units. Like, Mm -hmm. we hold a lot of waste inside of our house. Yeah. You know, like our compost bin, our trash, the sink, whatever. Like, that's food scraps for the flies to feed on. Right. Which I think humans in the past were smarter than to bring that stuff into their house. Yes. No, I mean, and and, I mean, even go, let's go back to, to, to Lindsay's stuff. Let's go back to, you know, Tehran. What does it say about a lot of these things? A lot of the science and i use that term quite literally a lot of these science and advanced technology that existed in say the book of exodus and within you know torah within levitical law and everything was to keep a lot of this shit from happening from it being a problem so you know i'm not saying that i'm in the right okay but also yes i would love it if there was a and you know someday certainly you know we have our designs for how we want to live I would love it if someday, you know, we're living more in a way that allows the bulk of nature to roam free in and out, you know, and not bother you. And I think that there there are ways to do that. And I think your point about it being a self-contained unit, like that our like our food, our waste, all this stuff is in one area. That is a very modern invention. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I mean that or, or way of doing things. I mean, even just a hundred years ago, most houses had outhouses. Right. You didn't go to the bathroom in your house. Right. You walked out to the outhouse. Right. No matter what time it was. Yeah, exactly. And the fly would be far more interested in that than they would be in, you know, your actual uh, home, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just a sweeter target, right? R- r- richer target. So, you know. Th- 
it's all connected, man. <laughs> it's all, all of the, Life finds a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, a lot of it comes down to, and, and right now, you know, what, what can I say? How can I justify some of the ways that I live? And this is true for all kinds of things, including technologies I use. A lot of it is really to, on a very short time frame, get to a point where I am living the more fully ethical life. You know, I mean, you, you, and this is how we all grow. We go through the moment of where we discover something, a new way, and then we have to figure out, you know, we get challenged by it. Um, we have our conviction and then we have to figure out, okay, how do we go forward? And you can ignore or you can make the change. Sometimes changes take years. And, you know, that's, I'm certainly on that path. And, you know, I think we are, you know, you yes, and I. Yes, we are. Because you know. ultimately what we want to do is just live like the ancients did. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, even doing that requires making our way through society first. Yes. You know, saving up enough money to buy the land so that nobody comes knocking on the door like, where's our tax money? You yeah. Know, yeah. Like, we just want to have privacy. And that requires you know, resources. Right, right. And I mean, and this is the problem. Like, there's no, there's really no wild anymore. Not true wild. There's wilder that we want to run off to, but there's nowhere where you go, really, where, you know, someone can't come knocking on your door and saying, hey, you're not supposed to be here or cough up, you know, $5,000 a year or a month or whatever. And, you know, for you to be able to stay here, like there's nowhere left like that on earth. And that's a problem, you know? if you just want to be left alone, like it's very difficult to just be left alone. Um, yeah. Anyway. There's just too many people. Well, there's that too. <laughs> yeah. That's and people other... willing to enact violence against other people. Yes. Yeah. For whatever they think is right. Yeah. Yeah. So, all that said, <laughs> that was wild. Um, yeah. Great conversation though. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you had, a Wikipedia article. Let, let's shift gears. Oh, boy. <laughs> you had a Wikipedia article. I don't know if... Uh, can oh, you no, make that bigger, please? Yeah, I can. It's, it's actually not that long. No, it's a short article. And right. that's part of the reason I chose it is because it's short, but it also describes something that... I think the way that I, I put it to you was like, it's something I've experienced many times in life, but mm -hmm. I never pinpointed it or put words to it. Okay. But, but this article does. Okay. Are you good if I read it? Please. Go okay. for it. All right. So it's the hot-cold empathy gap. So it's hot-cold empathy gap. Uh, a hot-cold empathy gap is a cognitive bias in which people underestimate the influences of visceral drives on their own attitudes, preferences, and behaviors. So just a quick note, visceral drives. This is a section that will be covered more in depth later in the article, but it's very important, so don't forget that word. Okay, visceral drives. I like it. All right. It is a type of empathy gap. The most important aspect of this idea is that human understanding is quote-unquote state-dependent. For example, when one is angry, it is difficult to understand what it is like for one to be calm and vice versa. When one is blindly in love with someone, it is difficult to understand what it is like for one not to be or to imagine the possibility of not being blindly in love in the future. Importantly, an inability to minimize one's gap in empathy can lead to negative outcomes in medical uh, settings. Example, when a doctor needs to accurately diagnose the physical pain of a patient. Um, 
All right, I want to stop for a second. So is this basically saying you can't know the sweet without the sour? <laughs> is, like, is, is that, is that so, the argument? So I think what it's saying more is that when you are angry, for example, uh-huh. you are not in the same state of mind. You can't make decisions in the same way as in a happy state of mind, for example. And you might not even recognize consciously the differences in the decisions that you would be making. Like, the nature of the decision-making is completely different because your state of mind is different. That's what it means by state-dependent. Oh, I see. So it's it's basically saying your baseline has completely changed. Right, right. Yeah, okay. So you could be more or less ethical in your decision-making depending on what mood you're in. Right. Okay, let's keep reading. Yeah. Uh, Hot-cold empathy gaps can be analyzed according to their direction. One, hot to cold. People under the influence of visceral factors, hot state, don't fully grasp how much their behavior and preferences are being driven by their current state. They think instead that the short-term goals reflect their general and long-term preferences. Two, cold to hot. People in a cold state have difficulty picturing themselves in hot states, minimizing the motivational strength of visceral impulses. This leads to unpreparedness when visceral forces inevitably arise. They can also be classified in regards to their relation with time, past or future, and whether they occur intra or interpersonally. Number one, intrapersonal perspective. The inability to effectively predict their own future behavior when in a when in a different state. See also projection bias. Two, uh, intrapersonal retrospective. When people recall or try to understand behaviors that happened in a different state. Three, inter. So instead of intra now, it's interpersonal. Uh, the attempt to evaluate behaviors or preferences of another person who is in a state different from one's own. Okay, so next sub, next subheader is the visceral factors that you, you highlighted. Visceral factors are an array of influences which include hunger, thirst, love, sexual arousal, drug cravings for the drugs one is addicted to, physical pain, and desire for revenge. These drives have a disproportionate effect on decision-making and behavior. The mind, when affected, i.e. in a hot state, tends to ignore all other goals in an effort to placate these influences. These states can lead a person to feel, quote, out of control, end quote, and act impulsively. Um, Do we want to read these areas of study? I don't think that that's necessarily as important as the first couple sections. Okay. All right. So we can skip that. So the visceral factors. So lay it out for me. Yeah, so visceral factors, as the article says, um, you know, feelings like hunger, thirst, love, sexual arousal, drug cravings, Mm -hmm. and physical pain, desire for revenge. These are all, um, they're so primal, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're so deeply rooted within all of us. They are feelings that are, in a way, they dominate our subconscious. Okay. And that, I think, is kind of the essence of what this article is getting at, is that these visceral factors, if you're experiencing anything, this strong visceral urge Mm -hmm. of some kind that you feel physically, emotionally, it takes over your whole body. It changes the way you make decisions. So, for example, people might feel the impulse to um, 
you know, if, if they're feeling, for example, like sexual arousal, they'll make decisions based on that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they'll send some naughty photos that they never thought they would send. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please continue. Yeah, well, I mean, sending from, photos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. personal experience. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. And, and, you know, like, so from my personal experience, I would have considered that to be reckless behavior, you know, something Mm -hmm. that is putting myself at risk because, well, what if these pictures get out of control, you know, but that visceral urge, that sexual arousal is so powerful that it overcame that, that desire to be safe. Okay. So, so what... I'm saying is, you know, these visceral factors, they really do alter your state of mind in a way that you may not be able to predict when you're not in that frame of mind. Right. I kind of feel like this is a personality version of like the Overton window or something where, where it sort of moves over here because of the present hot state, which I think that's what they, yeah, like. Is there are these vis- these visceral factors? Yeah, what you when you're in a hot state, you're experiencing a visceral factor of some right, kind. Right. Right. So basically, when you are in a whatever normal is, who knows? You're going to work, you're doing your thing, you know, and and you just go through your day, ho hum, you know, put the stuff in the bottle. I don't know. Um, that you know, when you're like that, the concept say of sending nudes or something isn't even it's not even on the scale it's not it's not in range you wouldn't see that however when you're going through your work day say and i don't mean you i mean royal everybody when you're so when you're going through and you're sexually aroused then suddenly that that enters like the idea of say sending nudes or something comes in range and but you're you're not the same person like, uh, am, yeah, am I so hitting it? Tell me. What you're describing about a person going to work, they're just doing their ho humdrum job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that is the cold state that this is talking about. Okay. So, this um, is clever. I like this language. Yeah, yeah. So they tend to underestimate the strength, the motivational strength of mm-hmm. the visceral impulses. Mm-hmm. So in a cold state, a person would think about like, sending nudes as a risky behavior like oh i would i wouldn't do that because right. you know they could be leaked online um and and maybe i don't trust this person or like maybe they're you just don't know yeah um so in a cold state a person would think like oh, i'm just i'm not gonna do that that's not me mm-hmm. but then you know when you get into the hot state and start feeling that that visceral sexual arousal then it becomes more of a uh, an impulse, a desire, something that is out of your control. And it's more likely that you will follow that impulse, um, even though you predicted in the past that you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, like, so what, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but what struck you about this? You know, what? Oh, well, I feel like this explains so much of human behavior that I've experienced throughout my life, not just Mm -hmm. for myself, Mm -hmm. um, which it's always fascinating whenever you personally make decisions in your life that create some amount of chaos 
and it's a stupid decision. You're like, why mm. did I do that? Yeah, but yeah. I think visceral factors can explain that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if if you're really hungry, if you're like, th- there's this common concept called hangry. Like, people act out in anger because they're just so hungry. Like, people don't normally want to be mad at those around them, and right. they, they don't want to like be rude or mean or anything like that. But you can act not yourself when you're under the influence of such a strong visceral feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and just thinking back through my life of some of the things that people have done or said um, that I just could not understand, that I completely disagreed with or felt wronged by. Um, and and now I'm, I'm starting to think about these visceral factors and maybe feeling a bit more empathy for those people. Right. And just that they're in a hot state. Yeah, exactly. And, okay, this isn't them. It's it's not how they would normally behave if right. they were in a, a cold state. Yeah, I want to be careful with that because it's still them. Yes. They still deserve the consequences. Or deserve is a strong word. They still have to deal with the consequences of their actions. So it's still them. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it helps you to understand them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And okay. yourself. I mean, this is one of those tools, I think, that... So I know you, you're you hot on this idea that words kind of confine us in a way in, in our existence. That but is I an think, excellent way of putting that, yes. But even within the realm of our confined psychology, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that sometimes these concepts that put together words in a new way, um, they're very helpful for learning about yourself and for learning about other people's behavior. Yeah. And this is just one of those cool psychological um, things that I just never knew uh, or never had put words to before. Yeah. No, I think I, this is really valuable from even, you know, like for me in, you know, we've talked a lot in this episode. I mean, we talked about empathy, of course, but we've talked a lot about killing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a point that I've brought up, I've brought it up on recent uh, uh, episodes um, that I've done with the Agora podcast guys in our little Into the Void sub-series and everything. Y- you know, we, we know this for a fact that outside of wars, whole different subject, but let's just keep it within, uh, you know, whatever normal civilization will say, um, that the bulk of murders that occur are what are called by technical definition, crimes of passion, which means it's a one-off. This person is not a killer. I mean, they did kill, but this person is not like a natural or not like a you know a serial killer. Yeah, they're not a like sociopath. That. They're not a social right. They did it once, and I mean the way that some of this is described here, you a know, desire for revenge to placate is- these influences. Like that, an effort to placate these influences hits that right on the head. Yes. That there are a lot of people who get clearly get into a hot state and engage in that crime of passion. Okay. That's not something that that person would ever normally do ever, but they are in a completely different state. Right. Um, and it's, it is as much as language confines us, it is helpful to actually have terms for this. And like a field of research, even for this sort of thing, um, because this is something we desperately need to understand. 
to keep all of those crimes of passion from happening in in the first place you know i and and i'm reminded of um william marston william moulton marston you know his point isn't that you know we're, we're never going to end war we're never going to solve all this with guns we're going to have to solve it by understanding men's hearts right and ultimately that comes down to knowing yourself yes yeah and this is another tool in the toolbox for understanding your own impulses your own drives and desires and mm-hmm. methods of decision making mm-hmm. yeah they're you're the current state that you're in um yeah so even just being able to acknowledge i am feeling very strongly the need for revenge at the moment Mm -hmm. so maybe i shouldn't respond to that text message or i'm feeling very sexually aroused so maybe i shouldn't be posting on social media yeah you know those (laughs) sorts of things the decisions that we make today are far different from you know what people have traditionally made but a lot of our life is online now. Yeah, no, it's the classic thing of trying to create space between the moments of stimulus and response. Yes. And you, you know, recognizing that any stimulus can bring you into what could be called a hot state. I mean, it's powerful to have a name for that now. You know, to have control. I mean, this is the thing. You know, I, I say that language is constr- can be constricting. Names have a power. When you name something, you actually can control it. Okay. So language and and there's a there's a fine line between language and names. I know people. It's a separate conversation to have sometime. And if someone wants to ask me about it, I'll do it for a Patreon Q and A. But there's a fine line. But having a name for something gives you control of the th- or can give you control of the thing. And so when you suddenly understand, ah, I'm in a hot state. You know, or what is my, I want to be in a cold state. You suddenly, you know, can, can, can control that because you have a term for what is for the sensation that you are feeling for what's happening to you. And you, only you know you, you know, that's why I like this. I, I even like this idea of it being hot state and cold state because it's not so much a judgment of what is the state. Or, you know, like, is it, I mean, you can feel, okay, it's a sexual arousal. Is it, you know, drug addiction? Is it, you know, this or that? Okay, you'll know that. But but just giving a name for that, your consciousness is literally shifting. Yes. It's so powerful. And that can allow you to have, to create more space, more time between the res- the stimulus and response which is what will allow you to. And so basically in that space, you can say, I'm entering a hot state. And once you know that, you can take action, you know, uh, upon that, uh, that, that potential coming hot state. And, and it will allow you, because even just because you're able to name it and think about it, it's going to create, again, more time between stimulus and response. Very important. Yeah, um, I absolutely This is a powerful agree. tool. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing. Um, because I, I I never I never thought of it this way and I love it, um, you know. It, sorry, do you have more? Did you something else you want to say? Yeah, and I also just wanted to say I like that it's called the hot to cold or cold to hot empathy gap mm-hmm. because it literally is saying you have no empathy for your own self, your decision making mm-hmm. when you're in a different state than when you made the decision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, I think, is also very powerful because that's kind of reminding us, like, no, we still have to empathize with ourselves and be forgiving, 
you know, if we make a decision that we think is stupid, um, it's okay. We can forgive ourselves. We can learn from it. Mm-hmm. But we also have to learn to recognize when we are changing our, our hot to cold or cold to hot states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are the visceral factors influencing our decision making? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think it's interesting their point about how, uh, you know, like, in, what is it? Importantly, an inability to minimize one's gap in empathy can lead to negative outcomes in medical settings. Example, when a doctor needs to accurately diagnose the physical pain of a patient. Like, yeah, you can be in a certain state where you don't feel the pain as much, you know? Um, and- yeah, I think what this is saying is that, like, if the doctor had a wide empathy gap for themselves, for uh-huh, example, uh-huh. they might underrate the pain that a Oh, that's true. Yeah, so both ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Got you. Yeah, spot on. Um, yeah, this is this is this is a really key concept. I mean, I, you just shared this with me, and I'm looking. I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. And I didn't put <laughs> yeah. it together till you know you're you're really breaking it down and talking about it. Um, well, that's why it's so helpful for us to talk about these together. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I feel I, like I learn more talking to you about something than I would ever by myself. Oh, it's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, the old saying we learn by doing is completely true. And doing can even be as much as just bouncing ideas back and forth off of somebody. I mean, that's that's part of the doing. Um, I mean, how many I can't even tell you how many times I've had an idea and then I'll discuss it with you and just me saying it out loud. And obviously also communication is 90 percent physical. It's not the actual verbal it's not the sound waves, or, well, it's, yes, it is partly the sound waves, but it's not just the words, right? Um, I can pick up on things and even just hear myself and feel myself in what I'm saying, and I'll just be like, wow, that was fucking stupid. Never mind. I'll, <laughs> I'll go in the room. <laughs> I'll be over there. Uh, so, yeah, that, that can be super helpful. But this, no, this, this, is, this is big. And, yeah, I mean, I, and I totally hear you why suddenly having a name for it to describe these moments and what people are going through when these things occur uh, is super helpful. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Even just knowing that there are things like visceral factors that can disproportionately affect decision-making and behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's incredible. I never considered... So, I, at one point in my life, when I, you know, many years ago, I lived with people who were drug addicts. Yeah. And their behavior was very irrational you know Mm -hmm. very all over the board you know sometimes Mm -hmm. they'd be really nice sometimes they'd be chill sometimes they'd be fucking mental Mm -hmm. and just picking apart everything that you do and like angry and yelling and you know it it was just very difficult to predict their behavior um unless like if you knew that they were out of drugs you could kind of predict what sort of scummy things that they would do to get the drugs. Yeah. Um, so, I, to me, it's kind of revolutionary to think that drug cravings are a visceral factor, just like all of these other things, like thirst, hunger, love, sexual arousal. Like, all of those can be just as strong a driving force for behavior as drug addiction. Yeah, well, I mean, these are all, you know, biochemical reactions, or at yes. least that's a part of it. And so... Um, sure. I have just never put it into perspective like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or given it like a really great term. I mean, bio, you can have, you know, it's like, (laughs) 
I think calling it a biochemical reaction isn't enough. Like, I love the idea of calling it visceral factors because, you know, for example, eating chocolate creates a biochemical reaction, one that looks a lot like love, actually. Um, so, you know... But feelings and states of mind are more than just exactly. a chemical reaction. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like it's that, a whole body experience. Ex yeah, yes, yeah. And so having more than that, like a term that is more than that, I think is really key. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that's visceral factors and hot and cold... Uh, empathy gap or you know hot and cold states i think is a, is a great great term to use i dig it yeah thanks yeah. I, i'm really glad we got to talk about this yeah um i mean i, I can already like i it, it's already added into my your repertoire my, my, yeah kind of my my uh, my cerebral repertoire in that i i can feel myself already in you know analyzing those moments like and I, I can even imagine moments where I'd just be like, ah, oh, shit, going into a hot state, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And even that would be enough to cool me off. I Seriously, I hope this is helpful to people. Yeah. Just so that they can recognize, like, oh, I'm in a hot state right now. Maybe right. I should delay whatever decision I was planning on making. Yeah, 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 yeah. And not to say, I mean, certainly there, you know, there would be hot states that are uh not negative oh you know, yeah that, sure that are, that are benign or, or benevolent like right. if you're hungry go ahead and eat like, yeah you know if you have sexual arousal <laughs> fuck yeah go ahead it's nothing fine. wrong with yeah that. i mean i'm you know like i'm in a hot state right now <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, well, well i mean the thing you did with your sweatshirt um anyway so okay. <laughs> um yeah, but yeah so not good. necessarily that there's anything wrong with with visceral factors right but you know, if if you think that you're making a decision that you wouldn't normally make or if, if you are taking an action that you might think is risky, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you want to think twice about what state you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Like we said in the 90s, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. I mean, that, that was it's still true to this day. <laughs> Everything in the 90s was <laughs> such wisdom. Uh, <laughs> right. Anyway, um, anything else on this? I think we just about covered it. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. Wow. Cruelty. Animal. <laughs> the horse is already Nazi. dead. You Nazi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to cut that out. <laughs> uh, can't say the N-word. Yeah. Um, all right. So we got, uh, we're got. we at about an hour and 50, 40, or hour and 54. Okay. Yeah, we're almost at the two-hour mark. Okay. So not want, bad. Yeah, not bad. I want to hit that two-hour mark. Okay. Yeah. So I've got a quick question. Okay. All right. What's better? Stargate SG-1 or Stargate Atlantis? Oh, come on. <laughs> I know. I just what added kind of another hour to the show. What kind of question is that? What kind of question is <laughs> Which that? Which one's better? Come on. Why couldn't you ask me about the Empath album again? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, while we're blowing things away, let you know. uh, um, All right. Well, I'm not going to have as much to say as I would about Empath, but yeah, Stargate SG-1. I, I like better. SG-1? Tell me why. Characters? Yeah, the characters. Yeah. Specifically the first few seasons when Jack O'Neill is still part of the team. Yeah. Didn't didn't so much like um, Mitchell, huh? Cameron Mitchell? He's all right. He's just yeah. no Jack O'Neill. Yeah, who is? Who is? Exactly. No, nobody's Richard Dean Anderson. No. RDA's the fucking man. Yeah. Um, 
it's just so great. I know. Like, there are certain scenes that I can think of where he's just saying something really sarcastic. Yeah. And it, it'll just live in my head forever. <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he is amazing. He's a master at sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it, and because we're, I mean, we're so, we're, we're almost done with Atlantis. We're just a few episodes away from being finished. And then we'll get into watching Stargate Universe. And I was thinking about it, and I'm like, yeah, like, okay, Atlantis has, I mean, it was great when, when, you know, Samantha Carter was on it. Like, that's nice. But really, I think you only have Ronan and, um, Taylor's a great character. Yeah, Taylor's great. I, I was thinking that too. But I mean, you have Ronan, Taylor, and McKay. And like, I, I, I mean, I like John Shepard, but I sort of feel like he's just he's just Colonel O'Neill Light. He's just a dude. I mean, yeah. there's nothing special about him. Right, and he doesn't really have the same swagger and uh, just charisma that RDA had. And he's not as funny. No, no, no. I mean, he he does have his own funny moments. Yeah. But just yeah nobody can live up to that yeah and and the show just doesn't really have a great leader position like you know general hammond w- was awesome oh yeah yeah he's right? the man yeah i know i know he, he hammond was hammond so, of texas hammond of texas he, he was, <laughs> imagine me rub, rubbing a bald head yeah i mean cuz every time he'd come back like when he'd come back and like continuum you know, or in later seasons at little points, and you just have like a guest role. You were just like, "Fuck yeah, man! It's General Hammond." All right, and you just don't get that with any of the leaders of of Atlantis. You know, minus Carter, of course. Um, but yeah, you just have so many goddamn great characters in SG One. And granted, you had ten years to do it. You know, as to where Atlantis only had uh, four, five. Five? Are we in the fifth season? Yeah, fifth season. Yeah, I don't know, but they they offed their leader like last season, and then they brought in oh, I know a new one for the last two years. It just doesn't and I allow. Have yeah, exactly. It doesn't allow enough time for you to form connections. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. Like I like Atlantis as a setting. Oh yeah, the idea of being in another galaxy yeah. and having a setup there and it's like totally right. different life forms. It's all so fascinating. And yes. I would love to explore that more. Mhm. Yeah, like I I mean I love Atlantis way more than I love the SGC. But I feel like this show just keeps setting up villains to take them down. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. kind of boring. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. so you took out the replicators and now what? Oh, now you got to go take out the Wraith. Yeah. It's like, why can't you just stop pursuing your enemy and, like, just fucking explore the universe? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, you really don't get any of that, any of that exploration. Which, I think you were getting, I mean, that was the beauty of the first few seasons of SG-1, is a lot of it was that exploration. Yeah. Finding new peoples, Mm -hmm. making new friends that would come back, which is why you'd have such an amazing cast of characters. And they were constantly coming across things where they were like, I thought that was impossible, but that's fucking amazing. Yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, so, all right, I'm with you. I think I've, I've, I've wafered here and, or wavered, I've wafered. <laughs> You've waffled. I've waffled. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the Waffle House. <laughs> um, now I've wavered here and there where it's like, ah, oh, no, I don't know, maybe Atlantis was better, but then I'm like, no, no. I mean, and Daniel Jackson's like just the shit. Oh my gosh, and yes, Daniel Jackson was my second favorite character, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just 
he's been a personal hero for so long for me. Um, yeah, he's a nerd in the true sense of the word, yeah. but he doesn't have the same social anxiety that McKay has. Right. He's he's he can be just as sarcastic as Jack O'Neill can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do I know you're really? You know, like there's points where you know an alien species takes over and is even inhabiting everybody's bodies. You know, and O'Neill would be like would say to to, to Daniel Jackson, "Well, how do I know you're really you?" And Daniel Jackson would just go, "Cause." <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and O'Neill would just be like, all right, yeah, it's Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing, is that they form such a close bond. Yeah. It was really yeah. beautiful to see that unfold, too. Like, even when O'Neill was being held prisoner by one of the um, one of the system lords, mm-hmm. um, Daniel Jackson, in his incorporeal state, was just there with him. Oh. It was so heartbreaking. Best. That, that episode. beautiful of, yes. at the same time. Yes. That episode in particular is uh, when they're dealing... It's kind of one of the first times you encounter Ball. Might even be the first time you encounter Ball, who mm-hmm. would become such a big character himself. Um, I mean, that that that's what made the show for me. Like, especially Richard Dean Anderson's acting in that was... Oh, fuck, man. Talk about no right and wrong. Like, he, <laughs> it was, and he, was, he was amazing. Um, yeah, okay, I'm with you. I mean... I feel like Stargate ultimately is just science fiction remix. Like you could call the show, really, you could just call it science fiction remix because it just takes everything mm-hmm. and just mashes it up. Like yeah. Atlantis is really Deep Space Nine, in my opinion, you know. Uh, and 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 they've they've just brought in so many different elements and so many great guest stars as well. Uh, yeah, okay, but I'm with you, and I I don't think anything coming in the last few episodes of Atlantis is going to change your mind. So it's part of the reason I wanted to ask this here. But, uh, all right, now we are, we're two hours and one minute. So we're, we're in the clear. Oh, we can finally stop. We, we can wrap goodness. this up. Woo! Is there anything else you want to get out there? <laughs> I think that both Stargate shows that we've watched so far are great. I'm not complaining about Atlantis. Yeah. I still think it's a worthwhile show to watch. Um, probably not as much as Star Trek, but that's, you know, just my personal opinion. Yeah, okay. Anyway, if you've never watched Stargate, uh, give it a watch. Recommended. Yeah, highly recommended. By Ellen Sovereign. There you go. Yep. I, I would still, again, put Star Trek in front of that, and before Star Trek, maybe even Babylon 5. Of course you would. Don't know this is a maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fact of life. Um, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, no, that's fair. I like that ranking. That's good. Thank you. That's good. Um, okay, so we've got all that, and uh, oh, you're just <laughs> yeah, we've got all that and a bag of potato chips. And don't forget, Do we have potato chips downstairs. Well, we just ate pizza before doing oh, this show, and that was good. Mm. Oh, I still feel it. It's like a pit in my stomach. All that cheese. Yeah. This yeah. was your idea, by the way. Well, we had to go into town anyway. <laughs> it's like the store's right there. I think we at some seltzer. point we should talk about our diet again. Next time we do a show, we should talk about our intermittent fasting and how that's going for us. Okay, all right. Because we could have that conversation now, but it would make the show two and a half hours, and I don't know oh, if your listeners least. want that. Oh yeah, and everybody's screaming. It's like, no, keep going. But anyway. <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you. You're dropping some some truth bombs on your Instagram, so I'm going to put this plug at the end here. Whoa! Go check out 
Mrs. Sovereign on Instagram. All you have to do is go to nwo.red and that takes you to the link tree and your your Instagram is there as well as other things, your artwork, your your store, all kinds of great stuff to the find newsletters? there. The newsletters? Yeah, yeah, all kinds of great stuff to find there. Yeah, so, I personally think your Instagram account is more interesting than mine, but, you know, if you want to see what's going on in my pathetic little life, yeah, please pathetic, drop please. by. <laughs> please, the things we do, the things we do. <laughs> Oh, come on. I can be a little suspicious about my own life, can't well, I? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it could be a little bit, but I mean, I just, I literally just took you behind Henry David Thoreau's woodshed and whoo! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, have you posted those pictures? Oh, no, no, no. Instagram will probably take those babies down. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. They're not that bad. Um, but no, I haven't yet. But who <laughs> we knows? We found a porn back there. <laughs> 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 well, I just, I just, you know, I'm reading the words of Thoreau, like, on, on the monument there in Walden, at Walden Pond. And you just got so turned on. I was inspired. And he says, it's like, oh, it's like, I came here to die, but then I realized I had never lived. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's live, baby. And pants came <laughs> off. And it, no, <laughs> I mean, I did, I did, mm -hmm. I did pull my dick out there. Well, I, I think that <laughs> no, I if, if we, well, yeah, but you were, for other reasons. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Well, I think we can safely say that if we were to die today, we certainly have lived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've lived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. All right. That's, uh, let's end on that one. <laughs> and we will see all of you woo, on the other side. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, four, five, six.